1: And welcome to episode 305 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we continued our annual tradition of sharing our New Year's tech resolutions. Have you made your 2022 tech resolutions? If not, give that episode a listen. In this episode, we wanted to discuss the relatively new phenomenon of legal tech and innovation labs and programs in law schools, a topic of special interest to me. Where are we and where might we be going? Tom, what's all on our
0: agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Ma Report, we will indeed be talking about law school labs and what they might mean for legal education, legal profession, and access to justice. In our second segment, we'll talk about our good friend, Wendy Werner, and what she taught us about personalizing your approach to technology, among many other things. We will miss her very much. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, Law School Labs. We talk every now and again on the podcast about innovation and Dennis, of course, is doing a lot of work in that area, but we don't spend a lot of time talking about where so much of that innovation is occurring. You'd hope that lawyers, having the benefit of being out in the world and getting experience, would be leading the way in innovation. And it's true that many law firms, mostly large law firms, have innovation centers. Um, But where I think it's really happening and where it's really interesting is in the law schools. A lot of forward-thinking law schools have created laboratories, uh, or maybe not just called laboratories, but they've created areas where they're working on real-world problems, developing interesting technology, interesting solutions to access to justice and other legal issues. With Dennis being someone who leads one of these labs, we thought we would devote some time to explaining what these labs do, how they're impacting the practice of law, um, maybe some other stuff. Dennis, you know that I'm going to ask you to set the stage and give us some definitions. So do you want to get us started? Yep. So this
1: phenomenon ha- ha- you know, started happening a while back and you You could see it, uh, I I think, coming out of chicago Kent Law School with Ron Stout, uh, Suffolk with Mark Lortz and and other people were were sort of nibbling at the edges of this. And then it sort of grew into more of a structured approach uh, in a, a number of law schools. So you can look at Codex at Stanford. You can look at, you know, where I'm at, Center for Law, Technology, and Innovation at Michigan State, which, you know, had other names before, uh, Suffolk Law School, Northwestern with Dan Lina, Chicago Kent, uh, just a, a number of, of these programs uh, that are out there. And usually what uh, defines them, I think, is is there there is a, a structure, an academic structure around it. So something like a center or a lab uh, notion, and and a, a group of of students, professors. Sometimes might be multidisciplinary, and usually some involvement with the legal community, with an idea of either a research or a, an experimental type of, of focus. And we're, we're seeing more of that and more attention to it. I'd say probably in the last year, one of the most interesting things is uh, uh, somebody who I really admire, April Dawson, who's at uh, uh, North Carolina Central, uh, which is one of the, the historic uh, black universities, the law school there got a $5 million grant from Intel to create a a lab. Uh, So there's, there's a lot of things going on. Um, and it's, uh, you know, and typically they're going to have a, a focus of one kind or another. So it could be on data analytics. Stanford does some great stuff on user experience. Uh, there's access to justice. Uh, you, you see some other other things out there. Uh, University of Richmond, I would say, is an, or, and Duke are other examples. So you could find a, a good number. I would say there's probably, my, my sense is maybe... Uh, 25 or 30 of, let's call it the, uh, I guess there's about 200 law schools in the, in the U.S., uh, give or take. And then there are some interesting things happening around the world uh, in Europe and, and, and in Asia. So uh, that's, that's sort of uh, a broad overview, Tom. It might probably makes sense for you just to kind of ask some clarifying questions from your point of view to kind of uh, pin me down on a few details.
0: Well, see, what's funny is is that um, is your is your statement that your sense is there are twenty five uh, labs out there because that sounds like there's not a great deal of certainty. I'll get back to that in a second about that, but here's what I want to do first is, um, is is what do you define as a lab? And the reason why I ask that is in doing my research, I found probably twenty five different things out there, and. They all are grouped under a loose category of labs, but they don't call themselves labs all. Some of them will say that they're clinics. Um, some of them are LLM programs, which I'm not sure an LLM program is really a lab. A lab sounds less, uh, uh, it sounds uh, more time constrained or time limited than an LLM program is. Um, some call it a lab when they partner with vendors just to try out legal technology. Um, there's an innovation law center. There are institutes. Are these all labs, or how would you distinguish if we're distinguishing?
1: Well, I think that gets into the old definitional debate that I always like to avoid, but I but I think you're, there is a notion of centers or institutes, which I'd say this this sort of academic structure around it that you know may involve fundraising, may involve uh, inter- interdisciplinary efforts, and would probably have. Uh, you know, a uh, let's just call it a center in, in my example because that's the one I'm most familiar with. Where you you could say, well, there could be the center which has its own director or somebody running it, and then one or more professors associated with it who kind of set direction. And then uh, what happens there will uh, uh, reflect the interests of of the law school either in innovation. Data analytics, as in Chicago, Kent, and or you know, or other kind of focus areas out there, and you'll see that. And then, I think some engagement with the uh, typically the local community, and you see that, uh, like at uh, University of Richmond, you also see it at, at Suffolk. Um, I also think you see some of that at Penn State. Uh, so there, uh, there are some examples of that. So that's uh, the most structured. Then I think you're right. There are some things where you say, we can do something that's a focus area, and it may have a number of things associated with it that we're looking at technology that uh, could be training, could be practical skills could be a cluster of classes. And then, then I think there also is, uh, although this is the most difficult thing, I think as a practical matter to pull off and sustain, is something that is like a lab where we say, in partnership, typically with, with courts, vendors, other people, we're actually really digging in and doing some research. and That's some of the things you see with data analytics, Uh, maybe a little bit with AI and definitely some things in access to justice. So it's like, what can we do together uh, in that area? And then also partnering, you know, across across the university is typically what you see in the lab. So with the labs, you do get a sense of, given projects that you're working on. I say the difference between a lab and what I would see as a clinic, it's a clinic to me are doing you know actual representation and work for, for clients of one type or another, whereas a lab is doing what I would say is would be considered more uh, a general or academic type of research.
0: So no labs out there who are trying experiments out on clients in real time? Well, I think that that's an
1: interesting to you know how you think of uh, as you ask that question. I would say I look at what they're doing at Suffolk, where they've uh, created these access to justice applications and rolled them out really quickly. You know, in connection with the pandemic and. Uh, evictions and other things like that. And I would say they're they're productizing, but I don't think they're ex- actually representing. But they're not representing people when they do clients. that. Clients, no. yeah. Uh, and, and I would think that you could do, the lab could do something in connection with the clinic. So say you had a clinic that was, uh, say, doing uh, expungements or, you know, a, a certain focus, that, and then the lab could take uh, some of the data that was generated through the clinical representation and, and work with it and suggest improvements, look at process, those sorts of things. Uh, so that's, that's a way I would, you know, I would kind of separate the two, but I think there's a lot of, a lot of different approaches. And so I think it's, it is a little bit hard to say, Oh, this fits the definition and this one doesn't. Cause I think we're still early on in the defining stage and I don't think it makes sense to say, you know, it, it sort of reminds me, Tom, back in the early days of blogging where people say like, well, even though you have this thing that looks like a blog, because it doesn't have this factor, it's not really a blog and you're
0: not a blogger. And you go like, yeah, fine, who cares? Uh, we're getting something done. So let's let's clarify it further. Let me let me see if I can narrow it down further. In your mind, are, are labs, quote labs, are they all about, or have a technology component cuz I know that I saw several that don't they call themselves labs but they are working on you know civil rights issues and they and, and it's not it's it, it's about finding innovative ways to deal with legal matters not not necessarily involving technology so is is Everything you just talked about seems to have a technological component to it, that there's technology and people are finding ways to use technology. But it seems like that the use of the term lab seems to be more freely used to mean anything to indicate an experiment to improve the the practice of law.
1: Yeah, so the way that the, the Michigan State Center for Law, Technology, and Innovation sort of structurally set up is there's, there's something called Legal R&D Lab, uh, something called the Innovation Hub, and something called the Emerging Technology Research Node. Um, and and we're still in the process of of building out, and that's sort of like a more aspirational structure than an existing structure right now. But I think those are sort of the the things where there's something that's kind of, hands-on actual experimentation type of lab, the innovation hub, which would be a collaboration and, and look at different ways that we can innovate in the area of law. So I see it more as a collaboration hub. And then the emerging technology research node, as it's called, would be, say, there's an academic focus on the impact of, of new technologies um, on on law in in various ways, and in in those cases, you say we somebody could do a a, a focus. I would call it um, on on say you're interested in virtual reality and other things like that. And that could become part of like a, a lab that's devoted to new approaches to, you know, trial presentation and things like that. So I think you, you typically you're looking for this flexibility and it's gonna have, it's gonna vary with uh, both the interests of the, prof- the faculty and the students. And probably, you, you know, as time goes on, once
0: you get funding, that will have an influence on the direction as well. So that kind of leads me to my next question, which is stability of the labs. Um, When I was kind of doing my research and I was looking out there for the different programs that are available, a lot of programs, maybe I should not say a lot, but several programs that were listed as going even as late as two years ago when I try to find them, they're nowhere to be seen or, or they've, or they've let, you know, there were a couple of them where their websites showed the last activity was four years ago. Um, It seems like uh, that not everything is destined to survive when you started a law school. What are the things that are, that, that, that take it that you need to take into account for the success of a lab program?
1: Well, um, there is the COVID factor, of course, on, on some of the stuff. Uh, but I think that there is uh, there's funding, there's commitment, and there's there's definitely uh, you know having the the individuals there or are the, or the groups there um, that carry it through, and then the the support and the vision uh, that come from the school itself, where they say this is something we want to do to distinguish our ourselves, and Um, That's why I like to use, uh, you know, April Dawson and North Carolina Central is that the, uh, you know, if you have a five million dollar grant, that's the sort of thing where you can say we have a lot of. They're going to do some cool things. I think as a result of that, it's likely to have longevity. I think where you have some professors uh, doing stuff on a part time basis. you know, where do they find some time that reflects their interest and they have a group of students who do that. It's a little harder to sustain. And then, uh, you know, as the students roll through, you might have a group that's, you know, very interested in in what the original focus of, of the lab was. or uh, And the next groups have less interest in that. Um, and, and you're trying to gauge that. So right now, I, you know, as I look, to what's uh, you know, even in in designing classes for the future, I know there are some things that students are going to be interested in because I'm surveying them, I'm talking to them, and you know, some of them aren't gonna aren't going to be surprises. You know, like Web three, uh, you know, uh, this everything involving sports, gaming. I mean, there's there's tons of stuff out there that are going to uh, attract uh, the interest of students. Um, whether that becomes, uh, and then you're trying to take that interest and align it with the, the overall mission of the law school and, and the university, which I think, uh, and if you get all that stuff lined up and the right people, you, the longevity will happen. I think as it's a part-time thing and there's turnover and other things like that, it's, it is hard to sustain.
0: Okay, so maybe this is a super broad question, but let's expand beyond, you've talked a little bit about Michigan State, you talked a little bit about Suffolk. Um, What are the kinds of things that these labs work on? I mean, what are the, there's probably a broad range, but in general, what what are they working on? Is it all access to justice? Is it more than that? What are the things that we're seeing mostly? Well, I think uh, you're seeing a, a broad range. I think there's a lot of cool
1: stuff happening in Access to Justice, um, and it, it kind of runs a range. So you can say, you know, Dan Katz at Chicago Kent has really been in, involved in data analytics, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, those sorts of things. So, uh Real strong focus there. Uh, Dan Lin at Northwestern, um, you know, is, is doing this really cool uh, program that uh, works with the what I would call the uh, the computer science department and uh, and the law school. And it's kind of like hard hard technology skills. So you see that. On one side, uh, at University of Richmond, they're doing some stuff where they're actually, uh, you know, reaching out uh, to law firms and helping them with, uh, you know, management and process improvement. Uh, Nicole Morris at Emory is doing this great thing with technology transfer, uh, you know, where the clinic, where where the center, which is called Tiger there, um, actually uh, helps, get the technologies that have been developed at the university out. That's a cool approach. Arizona State is doing some some stuff in the access to justice. Stanford's doing a lot of uh, both hard tech and then Margaret Hagan is doing this, this really cool, uh, you know, human centered design stuff. Uh, Vanderbilt, another place where they're looking at, uh, you know, access to justice uh, design um, and improving uh, delivery of legal services, among other things so there's there is a lot happening out there uh, at B y u uh some i definitely some productization in the uh the access to justice space so there are a lot of different approaches and it's almost what I like about it is it's just like a really creative area within within the law school world and so You know, you see that. And then, as I mentioned a little bit, some of the stuff going on in the rest of the world is also uh, uh, very cool as well.
0: You know, what's interesting to me is um, I think having law school labs is a great idea. I think that that, that innovation needs to be happening in two areas. It needs to happen in law firms, which unfortunately means they're really big firms because they're the only ones who can afford to do it. And in the law schools, because we need to be training our future lawyers to be more than just lawyers, they need to be working on solutions for the future because they are the future. That's corny, but I'll say it that way. Um, so I like that. But what I don't, what I don't get a sense of is, and, and what I'm wondering if there's a benefit here is, it seems like when you say, I have a sense that there's 25 programs out there, it doesn't seem like... There's a lot of collaboration between the, the the organizations, and and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm missing it, maybe there's something you haven't mentioned yet, but it feels like you know why isn't there why isn't there a, a a law school labs conference every year where everybody gets together and talks about it? And I know that there are some conferences that get together and talk about those things, but I don't get the sense that it is. Um, you know, everybody helping to pool their collective knowledge or helping each other to be better. Am am I wrong about that? Or is that something that's actually going on? Well, you're you're sort
1: of right and you're sort of wrong. And so what I would say is like, last summer, I believe it was, um, there was a great webinar um, with a lot of discussions w- with the people who were doing uh, the the legal labs, which actually was uh, the reason this became a topic for the podcast that I put on, on the list. And there was this feeling at the end of that webinar that we were all going to get together and maybe we should have a conference and we should have regular meetings and all of that and define like who all fit uh, you know, fit the category and invite more people into it, and and see what we could do. That to this point hasn't happened because uh, there's this little thing called COVID and other you know other things that that really do have an impact on on moving those things forward. Um, I have one of my RAs working on coming up with the list of of all the programs. Uh, there's a good list uh, that needs to be updated um, that uh, that I've that I've seen. So I, I think they're just we're at this sort of you know uh, baby step phase, but I, th- I think that collaboration is is going to happen. Um, it's uh, needs to be coordinated, and I, you know, Tom, you, like we we did a whole podcast on, uh, you know, how do you how do you start legal tech communities? It's you know some of the same same issues uh, on there, but I, I'm generally optimistic that over time, and I, th- I think through the American Association of of law schools, that's where we're likely to see that happen.
0: Well, you know, as someone who has co-authored a book with someone else on collaboration, I would say there's no better time to collaborate on things than when you're all stuck at home and doing stuff together. But that's just me. So let's let's look at the future. Where are we headed? What's you know what are the things that we need to be looking for, um, and and how can people learn more about law school labs? Well,
1: I think the first place to go is to go to your uh, your alma mater and say like, hey, what's what's actually happening. At at my old law school, and you know, and and does are there some interesting things there that I didn't know about? Um, and then you're, then I think you're starting to look at you know the uh, the usual suspects. I would say just kind of get an idea of of what's out there. And you know, I've mentioned a bunch of schools. Uh, uh, and, you know, I you know, Tom, you you looked through and you found about 25 places. There's, there are websites, other ways to, to find things. Um, and, and then they're just, you know, so kind of it's going to be self-education. And then. Everybody who's who's working in one of these loves to talk about it, and uh, you know, uh, wants people to wants to share what they're doing. Uh, we're also seeing alumni come out of out of these programs as well, and so we're still at a point where you, you have to go out and kind of find it. But, you know, I would say within, I don't know, a year or two, you're going to see uh, see more structure to to be able to find that and and the, the collaboration there. So I think you're right. I mean, there is no better type to collaborate, but it's also a volunteer group. And as we all know that if you make suggestions in a volunteer group, it's, it's People usually think that you're volunteering, which causes some hesitation uh, on the part of people. So uh, that, you know, that can be an issue as well.
0: And so I assume, and this is a loaded, uh, maybe softballish question for you, that you are bullish on law school labs moving forward. Yeah, I, I'm
1: bullish, and and the one thing that I think that COVID actually uh, makes me bullish on this because I think we have to try different things. I think that the lab the lab phenomenon is a great way for the law schools to to reach out into and connect with the community. Um, uh, it could be local, it could be alumni, but sort of where where their university, the 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 community their university lives in, and that's what's really interesting to me. I think they become a potential uh, like R and D department for. Uh, you know, state and federal courts, for you know, for law departments, other things like that. So I, I think that community piece is what I'm, I'm really bullish on. Uh, to the extent that I have hesitation, I, I think that you know it is different. I think that uh, there is, uh, you know, definitely of, you know, people are looking at the traditional legal uh, education approach, um, and so. Um, that will have that that will be the friction that needs to be overcome, and and that's difficult to predict how that's going to play out, and it could be that you know uh, it may turn out that as you said that it could be in large law firms, or other organizations that you see that this this type of uh, center or lab might work better than in the the uh, university structure, uh, but we'll see how that plays out. But I think it's. It's a way for the whole legal ecosystem to start to work together uh, to achieve some positive results.
0: Well, let's make sure to revisit this uh, in an upcoming episode, see how things have gone a few uh, months or years down the road. All right, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thisspanishgroup.org. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at Staffy.cc. That's staf and get five hundred dollars off with code Happy twenty four. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures—all critical parts of the litigation process. Yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile, and I'm Dennis Kennedy.
1: Tom, as you mentioned, we lost a very close friend, Wendy Werner, recently, and it's been difficult for for me because I I knew Wendy for a very long time. We wanted to remember Wendy and pay a little tribute to her, and I thought it might be good to talk to her, uh, talk about her as an example of a person who never really felt she was a tech person at all, sometimes was aggressively non-tech, and she might even use that phrase. Um, she she took a certain pride in saying that she was the last person using a flip phone, but uh, her own approach to technology adoption was, was actually really thoughtful, and I think we could all learn from it. Uh, I know that she... She talked to people. She thought for years uh, before she went and bought an iPad, and then she loved it. And uh, you know, once once she got one, um, and it, I think her, her in her own way, she illustrated what I think of when I talk about jobs to be done and knowing what you're hiring your technology to do for you. So, Tom, I'll, I'll let you lead this segment off.
0: So you knew Wendy longer than I did. So I think you're going to have a better uh, or a different approach to it than I than I did uh, to her and technology. But I want to do a very quick background on Wendy for those listeners who didn't know her. Um, Wendy wasn't a lawyer. Uh, She worked a lot with lawyers and the law. She was a a career coach for lawyers. She was the founding board member of Arch City Defenders, which was a a St. Louis criminal justice reform and relief agency. Um, I got to know her through her many years of service in the ABA's law practice division. She was I think responsible in a big way for us writing this latest version of our collaboration tools book. Um, She was a great photographer. She was a great lover of Aussie shepherd rescue dogs, She loved the Oregon coast and in turn made me love it as well. Um, But this is a technology podcast, so we want to remember Wendy's relationship with technology. Um, Wendy is of a generation where you wouldn't be surprised to see her ignorant and uncaring about technology. I think in today's language, she was definitely a digital immigrant when we talk about technology. But she didn't hate technology. She didn't love it, but she didn't hate it. Um, I coined the term, after being with her for a while, I coined the term um, technology ambivalent to describe her, and she loved that term. She mentioned it several times to me, um, but she really could take it or leave it. And and I, I think what is interesting is that when she decided to take it, she was very intentional about doing that. As Dennis mentioned, it took her a while to commit to just getting an iPad. Um, she learned how to use that device and when she used it for, and she used it for the purposes for which she needed it And rarely more. And she was completely comfortable with that. As Dennis said, I think this is a refreshing approach to technology to get what you need out of it and be completely satisfied with what you get. We could all, I think, do with a little tech ambivalence from time to time. Wendy, we will miss you so very much. Um, Dennis, do you want to take it from here? Yeah, so
1: I, I mean, you you, you sum things up. I mean, I got to know Wendy when starting when she was, uh, you know, headed up the career services office at St. Louis U. and and uh, you know I work with her on a, a St. Louis Minority Clerkship program and uh, you know knew knew her for for many years. Um, and uh, f- considered a very close friend, but I—it I, just struck me, you know, as you're, you're it's, as we were thinking about her, is that. She just really interrogated technology in a way that I liked. You know, she was more conservative about it, but she was like the opposite. And I was thinking before we did the show, I sometimes think of people who will say, oh, I have these 10 new gadgets I got and I, you know, I'm trying this and I'm trying that. And I want to say to them, like, well, what about the last shiny new thing that you were saying was the best thing ever? You know, Wendy was kind of the opposite of that, and I think you could, you could learn from that. So in her photography, she totally understood, like, you know, what equipment she needed and why. But with just saying, oh, and to have tech for tech's sake, and especially computers, um, that was different. That was a different story, and and so I think the iPhone or the iPad thing for her was. Uh, to see her take to that because we, there were a number of us who told her for a long time, she would say, here's, here's what I don't like. And here's what I don't need. And this would help me. And that would help me. And I think I remember, I know I said a lot, and I know you said time a lot, Jim Callaway, others would say like, you're talking iPad, Wendy, you're just talking iPad. And then once she, she under, tried to understand it first and then, and worked with it, and you know she was really, really good at using the iPad. Um, and you know, I learned, I learned things from that. And so I, I think that sometimes when you, um, you, it's good to be conservative in your approach. You don't have to go to the, to the newest uh, thing, and you know try to under, you know, say I'm going to be first at this. But if you can understand why you're going to, why you're going to use it what the job to be done is. And she just illustrated that whole jobs to be done notion of just, just a you know, one of my, one of my best friends, the whole time I was in St. Louis. Um, uh, I miss her, miss her greatly, but uh, just a, a life well lived in, in so many ways. Um, now it's time for parting shots that one tip website or observation. You can use the second this podcast ends time, take it away.
0: Uh, So mine is a website. Uh, This is called 12feet.io. It's just 12ft.io. I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, The the tagline there is show me a 10-foot paywall and I'll show you a 12-foot ladder. Um, And this operates from the theory that um, any website that has a paywall to it, they're still going to let Google index it because they want those articles. They want that content to show up in the search results. Um, And so that version of a document still exists somewhere in a Google cache. And so what uh, 12-foot does is you put in a uh, URL of a paywalled article and it will go and find the cached, uh, unpaywalled version of the page. Now, it's not perfect. I can't get it to work on Wall Street Journal articles. It's hard to get it to work on New York Times. Times articles, but there are a lot of websites that I was able to find the unpaywalled version of it. So if you're looking for something that has a paywall, if some site that you have no intention of, of subscribing to that just to get to that one article, then put the URL into 12foot.io and you might get the uh, the unpaywalled version for free. I'm sure publishers will be happy with, with that one, but uh, it's,
1: I you know, I, I take your right time. This paywall stuff has made the internet really difficult to use in the, in the, in the past year. So uh, I'm in favor of, of uh, anybody who's helping, helping us open up uh, access to inf- information. Um, so my uh, party shots, and I have uh, two, two of them, Time So a quick one is the uh, 2022 uh, ABA uh, legal technology resource centers, women of legal tech, uh, honoree nominations are now open, and I will ask Tom to put the URL into the uh, uh, into the show notes, so you can you can find the place to uh, submit your your nominees for consideration. Um, it's a great list, uh, a great project, and there's been there are great people on the list, and if you know women of legal tech. Uh, that uh, deserve to be on the list, and uh, by all means, nominate them. Um, the second thing is is some is is very new for me that I'm experimenting with. So I did my personal quarterly offsite, and one of my things was I'm calling the smalls list. And so what I found is there I have like uh, it could be technology annoyances, it could be other things that that uh, are just kind of small projects that kind of get in your way. So sometimes you have low energy or you just have a little, a little bit of time and uh, you know, you're know you thinking like, oh, I need to set something up or I need to, to do something and it's going to take a short period of time. I'm just creating a list of those smalls. So when I find myself in that situation, I go, oh, uh, I can do these things and I can start to knock those things off. And I think there's these little improvements I can make. To, to my life, like I just did something today that uh, had been sitting around for a long time that I knocked out in about 15 minutes and I feel great about it. And so you get the sense of accomplishing things and, you know, getting stuff uh, off of your to-do list uh, uh, and out of your head and done. Um, and I just call it smalls. And so, if, uh, you know, if you look around and say, oh, here's some little things that I like to do, Um, and start to put them on a list and just knock them off, I think it's going to make you feel a lot better.
0: There was actually an article in somewhere that I saw today that talked about the whole notion of productivity around any task that you can get done with in two minutes or less, go ahead and do it. And she was writing about how much more productive it made her feel. So a very good tip. Well, I would say the two-minute rule is like a great
1: David Allen thing, and what I always found with it was that the problem came up when you thought something was a two-minute task and it really ended up being like a two-hour well, task. you need to have you need to have better good you need to have good judgment
0: about it, and hopefully, as you practice on it, you get better at it. I was take two that.
1: minutes to put this IKEA uh, piece of furniture together,
0: and then next thing you know, yeah, it's four that's hours. Clearly, later. not a two-minute task. And that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for the show on the Legal Talk Network's page for this podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the show in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous episodes along with transcripts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, reach out to us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Or remember, you can always leave us a voicemail at 720 441
1: from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report only on the Legal Talk Network.